Hello, it's Paul Scott here again with my weekend summary of the small cap value reports for the week on stockopedia.com that I write with Graham Neary. So I've got lots to cover today, so I'll just launch straight into Monday. I looked at Acrol Group, A-C-R-L. I'll try and complete this section without any weak puns about toilets or uh, toilet paper, because that's what it sells. Now, the, the, the H1 trading update from Acrol was actually pretty good. Um, they said they're expecting full year results uh, at least in line with market expectations was the phrase the, oops what happened there is the phrase they used um, substantial growth in volume uh, they managed to raise prices a lot this was the previous problem because the flaw in the business model with this is that they they make a small gross margin taking big rolls of toilet paper and turning them into small rolls of toilet paper and the trouble is their input input prices go up and down like a yo-yo and they have limited ability to pass on price rises or at least they can after a time lag so I just don't think it's a very good business model although one of the readers did say that apparently they're matching up input and output prices better these days with improved contracts so that's quite interesting so yeah, the net debt of 30.5 million is still quite a lot. Because remember, this is only a company making about, I think, 7 million profit a year forecast for the current year. And although they've said they're at least in line with expectations, the expectations, if you look at the Stockopedia graph for broker consensus, have been dropped by uh, more than two thirds. So it's easy enough to step over the bar if the bar's been lowered from five foot high to one foot high, isn't it? Uh, so you always have to check that graph, I think, to see how uh, how tough or easy the compare the the forecasts actually are. So I'm I'm just I just don't think it's a very good business. I wouldn't want to own it, and I I don't think the shares scream value to me. If it was half the current price, I might look at Acrol, but I just don't see value there. Although to be fair, this update was pretty positive. Next off, I looked at Podpoint Group, ticker P O D P. Now this is the first time I've looked at it, so only an initial review. Oh. Dear, oh dear, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go near this. I just think it doesn't have a viable business model. It's installing um, electric vehicle charging points, so obviously that gives it a sort of fashion, the share, a sort of fashion value right now. But if you if you dig into the figures, it just put out a trading update, and I looked at the previous published figures. It's just not a bit a viable business model. They're heavily loss making. They're cranking up overheads, and most of the sales to households are just one-offs there's no recurring revenue after the unit's been installed so um, there is a commercial section as well but that generates very little recurring revenue I just I think this is absolutely hopeless and interestingly enough it's 55% owned by EDF so I did the electricity generator so I did raise the question why did EDF float it possibly you know instead of keeping it in-house Probably because they want someone else to pay for the rollout of, uh, of of electric vehicle charging points and not do it themselves because it's not it's not uh, a profitable activity. So I wouldn't touch PODP. I think that share is is I would say doomed to failure. It's probably one of the. It's already lost about three quarters of its value since floating. Um, I just think over a number of years that probably gradually grinds down to zero. It's got pots of cash, but it's spending the cash. On rolling out these these EV charging points that generate hardly any recurring revenues. So what's the point? Graham looked at TT Electronics. Now that one's very interesting on one aspect, particularly the pension scheme. They've managed to hive off the pension scheme, uh, announced a buy-in of it, a bulk annuity contract with um, 
with an insurance company. And that's really, really interesting because if other pet companies with pension schemes can end up doing the same thing, you've just removed a huge liability and cash outflow obligation from the companies. So when I've got time, I'm going to have a closer look at that. But as I'm thinking, if we can look at what the structure of the TT Group pension scheme was and then compare, you know, in terms of the accounting surplus, uh, the actuarial deficit, and the actual gross size of the liabilities and the assets, and then compare that with other pension schemes. I know there are always lots more moving parts and it's very, very complex, but um, we might at least be able to get a rough idea of how much weight we should put on pension deficits at other companies. So that's on my to-do list. Graham also looked at, what was it? Was it Polar Capital, I think? Uh, yeah, Polar Capital Holdings, P-O-L-R. Graham's very good on this because he's a he's an ex-fund manager, so um, he really adds a skill set that I don't have, an experience that I don't have. So it, it, he's always let loose on the finance um, sector shares, and he really adds value. I'm sure you'll agree. Now on Tuesday, this is the twenty second of November. I was rather preoccupied actually because I've been I've been selling um, my car and I finally had the transaction completed on Tuesday, so that took took out a chunk of uh, my day. I've decided to get rid of my Porsche Taycan, which I um, I've had a year. I just wanted to try out an electric car, and uh, this seemed to be the best one. And um, I, I absolutely love it. It's an amazing car to drive. You know, it's so quick and just handles like a go-kart because it's got 600 kilos of batteries at floor level. So you can imagine the, the centre of gravity on it is probably lower than for any petrol engine car by far. So it's just like a two and a half ton go-kart, basically. It's an incredible car. But I barely used it. I only did 2,600 miles in a year because I worked from home. And it was so bloody big, so wide and really difficult to place on the road that I found it actually difficult to manoeuvre out of the underground car park where I live. Also range anxiety is a, is a big thing um, with electric cars and I don't think they've the infrastructure's up to scratch. So anyway I sold it for five grand more than I paid for it which was pretty good going I think. So uh, yeah but I, so I'm replacing it with an Audi A4, a petrol engine one, a bit boring but uh, so that's just arrived in the UK at the docks apparently. So I should get that in a week or so. So um, that should be nice. Anyway, moving on to shares, I looked at Forterra, F-O-R-T. Now this is interesting. This is one of the listed brick producers. There's also Michelmerch Bricks. And I think, I don't know if they're an actual producer, but Brickability, they might be more of a distributor, is another one. But anyway, Forterra, I think this looks really interesting, F-O-R-T, in line with expectations update for December 22. Now the obvious thing that everyone's going to be saying, isn't it, with brick manufacturers is, is, oh, you know, house building will slow and, um, you know, demand will dry up, profits will collapse when there's a surplus of them. But read, well, that was my preconception as well. But I have to say, reading, I'm talking fast because I've had a, just drank a whole pot of coffee. So um, <clears throat> the, um, the, the, what was I saying about Forterra? Something about, oh yes, there's a very interesting dynamic about the brick um, market in the UK here, which Forterra explained very well. And that is that there's undercapacity. There's not enough production capacity. Now Forterra's invested a hell of a Lot, about 100 million I think in building a brand new factory so it's obviously very capital intensive big barriers to entry and because they're heavy very heavy bricks are you transport them long distances it costs a lot of money so that favors domestic producers of them now what Forterra is saying is because they can't make enough of them basically they're comfortably able to pass on price rises 
because obviously it's a heavy energy user, isn't it, making bricks? Um, but also um, imported bricks and currently making up the shortfall. But Forterra says that its customers are saying they would rather buy its products because they're higher, more consistent quality. And of course, they're made locally, so transport costs are low. So there's a very interesting thing for Forterra, given that it's got new capacity coming online. It says this new factory will be the biggest brick-making factory in Europe. <clears throat> so this sounds really significant. Sorry, I just blasted your eardrums there. I've just seen the sound meter. I'll try and cough more quietly. And um, so it's got an interesting dynamic here that any downturn in demand probably means that Forterra will be able to keep production uh, going at current levels and even increase it and displace imports that would, would 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 otherwise have filled the gap so the gap will probably shrink anyway i looked at forterra's finances as well they look really good almost ungeared balance sheet so this is very much a sleep at night stock even if there is a recession so i've concluded that i think it's starting to look interesting so f-o-r-t uh, an interesting company i think i also next i looked at van l holdings ticker v-a-n-l just put out a trading update to end of october which is, I think it's, um, oh no, it's an April year end, so this is an H1 update. Uh, it's got, again, this one's got a strong, largely ungeared balance sheet at Vanel. Uh, the outlook, it's encouraging, but the outlook uh, for, for the current financial year, ending April 23, but beyond that, um, I am a bit worried about the macro negatives. This does piling, um, which you need to do, I believe, for uh, foundations. Uh, it's not just for large buildings either. My brother's just had a garage rebuilt and they had to have uh, piling put in underneath the foundations. I suppose the, maybe the ground was too soft or something. Well, anyway, um, it cost them 10 grand extra unexpected costs. So um, and that's just for a double garage. So piling um, is a potentially interesting area. And Vanel basically owns all the kit outright that it uses um, the machinery and so on. <clears throat> I'm just questioning, though, whether larger building project, projects will necessarily be so plentiful. And we actually, this reminds me actually of, I think Graham looked at T. Clark, CTO, and although its current sort of outlook is, is, is very good, they're quite late stage in the building cycle, CTO is, because it's doing, it does electrical and IT fit-outs of um, uh, large offices and so on. And I think my worry is that because you've now got a t an economy turning down in interest rates significantly higher, big building projects are likely to uh, um, reduce. And that might, might take it take a year or 18 months or even two years to feed through to companies like CTO, which is at the end of the building cycle. But Vanel, <coughs> Vanel which is more at the start of the building cycle, could see um, a downturn, I think. So I just concluded that risk reward at this stage in the economic cycle doesn't look right, doesn't look particularly appealing to me for Van L. I think if you ignore the economic cycle and the sectors that are likely to turn down, um, then really you're, 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 you're taking a big risk. You've got to take into account the economic cycle. You can't just ignore it because um, <clears throat> it play, the same factors play out time and time again when, whenever, whenever there's a downturn. It's an essential part of our skill set as investors to be able to understand the economic cycle and where we are in it, even though none of us know. Obviously, I'm not trying to forecast exactly how the economy will work because I haven't got a clue. But, <clears throat> you know, there are certain sectors that it's best to avoid um, when the economy is about to go into a downturn. 
Now, an absolute minnow called Osirium Technologies, OSI. Well, a couple of the readers say, why on earth are you talking about this? It's two million market cap. It's, um, you know, a basket case, blah, blah, blah. I just think because the product looks interesting. It's some sort of, I think it's some sort of cybersecurity software. <clears throat> and they're selling it to quite credible customers, although... <clears throat> It's always been heavily loss making. So when I first looked at it uh, a while back, I said, look, don't go near it until it's refinanced. Well, it's actually got away a small refinancing at 2p, 50% discount. This is why you need to avoid these tiny speculative things that need money, um, need to raise money. Because right now the funding window has more or less been slammed shut. It's maybe just you could be prized open if you offer a hefty discount to anyone prepared to put in more funding. But I really do think it's best to wait for uh, for companies to be properly financed at this stage, uh, with, uh, otherwise you're just throwing money away and you're going to get diluted. Um, Graham looked at AO World. I think on that one he's no longer negative. I think I, sh I, I can say that. Um, but not, well, neither of us think it's it's uh, value. But at long last, the um, delusional founder of the group seems to have realised that just chasing revenue and not really bothering about costs isn't such a good idea after all. He seems to have been drag kicking and screaming towards the idea that actually it'd be a good idea to run the business efficiently and try and make a profit. So that's a bit of a sea change there. All this tech you know, tech boom nonsense that fills people's heads has to be sort of, uh, has to be uh, beaten out of them, I think. And we do seem to be in that stage, don't we? Where also you've got VC money that was just being thrown at tech startups, that that's probably uh, winding its way down now, giving a fair environment for businesses that actually try and make a profit. And you might see a lot of these <coughs> tech startups fail as well. I don't think AO World will fail. It did did refinance recently and the main thing is it's now focusing on making a profit. So, uh, But I can't see any appeal to the shares. I think people are probably anchoring to a, a previous share price that was too high to begin with. But the, share, the chart's looking quite encouraging on that. What else did Graham look at? Cars and Altitude. Oh, and M. Wink with a tiny little franchised real estate agent. So, Sorry, estate agent in England, British. Right, on to Wednesday's report. I think this was the one where we had a, a complaint from somebody saying, oh, why haven't you looked at this company? Why haven't you looked at that? Or have you looked at a couple of things that I don't understand why you've looked at them and so on? Please don't do that. It just, it's, I can't tell you how deflating and undermining it is when people, uh, when we're working flat out to cover as many companies as we can. We covered nine companies on Wednesday and we still get people moaning about, why haven't you looked at this? It's probably because it's just an in-line with expectations update. So those go to the bottom of the list because there's nothing price sensitive in in-line in update, is there? So, you know, we can't cover everything. We cover over, over 500 companies as it is. Uh, which is, you know, really a large section of the small caps market. So um, we prefer it if people don't have a go at us for not. I mean, you know, if you if you flag up a really, really interesting company, we will look at it. So put up a synopsis and say, this is why I think this company is good, blah, blah, blah. And uh, we always read all the reader comments and we take on board everything. So uh, anyway, that's just a little moan from me. So um, uh, let's move on. Knights Group, KGH. Now, um, one of our subscribers called The Floating Investor flagged up a, a seriously big uh, director purchase of shares in Knights Group, KGH. I think this is one of these listed... Uh, 
legal services um, groups, which used to be partnerships, but now they can list. Um, so KGH, the CEO, spent a million quid buying shares at 83.9p. But although for context, I should say that when I look back at the director dealings tab on the stock report, um, it showed that he sold 61 million quids of the shares in January 2021 at £3.90. So he's now bought a, a little slug of them back at a quarter of the price. Pretty shrewd CEO, I would say. Uh, he's already got 20.7% of the company, so interests are well aligned. Also, there was a good trading update the day before from Knight's Group. H1 was in line. The outlook sounds upbeat. Uh, I haven't dug any deeper than that, but I think this one looks really interesting. Super low PE, and if the CEO just spends a million quid um, buying shares, that's uh, and he seems obviously a very shrewd CEO as well, then I think that makes this one uh, well worth having a closer look at. Next off, I covered uh, interim numbers from Interseed, IGP. This is an old favourite of mine. I bought them in 2018 when it was um, starting uh, a pretty impressive turnaround. I've got a bit bored with this more recently, um, so I have moved on. But uh, I still think uh, it looks pretty good. The interim numbers were good. It made 1.2 million profit after tax for H1. Uh, not bad for a small IT company because obviously their headcount costs are, are rising quite a lot. A lot of CEOs are telling me that, uh, or telling us that, I should say, rather in the RNSs. Um, it gets a negative tax charge, Interseed does, which I think is connected with the R&D tax credits. I think the Chancellor said something in the autumn statement about R&D tax credits. Maybe not quite so generous going forward. I, I don't know. That would be worth checking out for companies where it's a big slug of their after-tax earnings. Uh, the strong dollar has helped intercede because um, most of its uh, customers are in America. They're typically um, American public sector organisations, big organisations. Uh, what have we got? What else have we got? Oh yeah, 10 million net cash is, is nearly a third. Well, it's about a third of the market cap now. Uh, a lot of that is upfront payments from clients, but still it's just every set of results, the cash figure goes up, which is very encouraging. But only slight negative about it, and it's not really negative. I'd just like to see faster organic growth. Um, it's made a interesting little acquisition recently into Seedhouse, which looks to be more about broadening the product range uh, rather than bolting on much in terms of actually actual numbers. I think it's fundamentally a very sound company. The CEO is great there, Klaus van der Lees. I've uh, got quite friendly with him over the last few years. I think he's a really um, uh, high-quality CEO doing good things at um, Interzine. Interseed and keen to grow it into a bigger group, I think. Uh, another small IT company I looked at on Wednesday was CML Microsystems. Now, I don't really understand what it does. It's something to do with computer chips. Um, but anyway, the interim numbers were really good. Uh, oh, hell, I was going to make this into a mystery show, wasn't I? Oh, oh well, it's going to have to be non-mysterious. Sorry about that. Uh, good interim numbers. So this is one of the best things I spotted during the week. That's all that all mystery shares are. They're not actually mysterious. But anyway, good interim numbers. And I noticed a substantial increase in broker forecasts. That's what's particularly interesting of this. Uh, the outlook comments on CML were quite vague, but it concludes, concluded by saying we see a very positive outcome, quote unquote. Uh, for financial year three 
23. Um, also, with this share, about a third of the market cap is made up by net cash. It's genuinely surplus net cash, I think. It's also got 16 acres, I think it is, of surplus property that it's developing into, it wants to develop into a, a business park. So you've got some nice upside from that. Um, so anyway, sorry, sorry to subscribers, this was going to be a mystery share, but um, I um, blabbed a bit too early about it and I never edit these files because I don't know how to. So uh, next I looked at Phonics Mobile, FNX. This is a nice little company, you know. It floated in October 2020 and hasn't put a foot wrong. They do the um, the text and, you know, you know, when you have to vote for, I'm a celebrity, vote for Jill Scott or whoever, Matt Hancock, who seems to be the runner-up. I've actually got a bet on him that I put on at about 40 to 1. So I've just laid off some of it to mean that I can't lose, even if he does lose. So that's that was encouraging. Little sideline of mine, just <laughs> betting on uh, on uh, fun things like that. Only only fun money, not serious money. Anyway, so Phonics provides the um, the technology behind these voting for TV shows, and it's got very very sticky customers. It's also planning growth from new products and internationally. So I think this this is looking interesting. It's not cheap. But I think Phonics, um, oh, it pays out nearly all the earnings and dividends because it's one of these companies that doesn't really need uh, uh, any capital. So it gets a thumbs up from me anyway. I remember I did have a one-on-one -on -one with the CEO over Zoom uh, soon after they floated and he came across very, very well. Um, they've got quite a bit of skin in the game, I think management have. And it's just one of these small companies that quietly gets on with doing what it does well. Uh, in 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 a, in a niche that it um, dominates and its customers stick with it year after year. So yeah, I like Phonics. Now, best of the best, BOTB, an old boom and bust story that we've covered for many many years. Um, uh, now this has changed a bit now because Teddy Saggy, whose company Globe Invest Limited has taken a, a twenty nine percent strategic stake in it, and it looks like it's kind of the first stage of existing founder management bowing out. They've sold a lot of their own shares. Obviously, at a, at a spectacularly high price, they stuffed a, a load of institutions with um, their shares at the peak of the boom. So, uh, but it's come all the way back down again to where it was before the boom. I think that I think the valuation is looking potentially attractive again. Actually, on best of the best, uh, it's in line with expectations. So the PE is only seven. Um, and uh, online advertising is, is getting cheaper now, which, of course, is the thing that really clobbered their profits. So and with international growth um, opening up potential there, the only thing they, they haven't they still haven't assigned a deal with Globe Invest, uh, which is going to try and develop it internationally. So I do wonder maybe behind the scenes as if um, the relationship may not be panning out as hoped. Uh, but anyway, bottom line, so there's a risk, the downside risk, I think, with BOTB is that that relationship with Globe Invest might turn sour. But um, there's nothing priced in for the upside on that anyway. So I think maybe it's time to just put sentiment to, to one side and revisit BOTB. Who knows? We could be in for another bull run on that one. I think it's I think it's looking interesting again, actually. Accesso Technology, ACSO, put out a positive update. Looks pretty good. Revenue a little bit ahead of consensus. Favorable market margin mis mix and cost savings. It only quotes cash EBITDA margin, which... Pff, 
I've no idea what that is. And, you know, it's if they if they point a, if 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 they use a meaningless metric as as their performance measure then how on earth do we um how how are we meant to manage uh, to value it but anyway look i think this could i've concluded um excessive could be worth a closer look graham looked at dp eurasia um dpeu dialyte dia that's the the lead lighting thing for industrial applications uh, what else do you look at abdp which is ab dynamics an interesting little um technology consulting group uh yes that was wednesday next on thursday um one of my favorite shares headlam i don't currently hold i've got very few positions at the moment because um i just got clobbered so much in my spread betting accounts as we talked about before that i just closed all of the positions and thought i'll I'll sit on the on the on the sidelines and decide what to do later so anyway, Headlam is a stock I like. It's on my to-buy list. H-E-A-D, carpet distributor. Uh, it put out a very mild profit warning. So mild that, frankly, it, it you know, it's it's neither here nor there. This is for financial year 12, 22. Uh, it said results expected to be slightly below expectations. It clobbered the shares about 10% first thing, but I think they've recovered some of that. And that's the right sort of drop that it should have dropped about five to ten percent, and it did. So no great shakes there. There's lots of um, it says volumes are down for carpets as consumers retrench, partially off, off, offset by an improvement in commercial. Because of course they had a hiatus on the commercial side during the pandemic when a lot of offices were underoccupied or unoccupied, and are now you know the trend is now very much towards people coming back into the office uh so 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 that's quite nice they've got a bit of a counterbalance there they're also doing lots of self-help measures although bear in mind there is um an upstart um called likewise i think it is which is rapidly growing and run by the former ceo of headlam a smaller competitor which is actually quite credible i looked at likewise recently and thought mm, this looks potentially interesting but of the two, I would go with Headlam, and it owns a huge amount of freehold property as well. I think that's mainly its giant head office at uh, Ipswich, and there are big benefits to scale if you're a carpet distributor. So I like Headlam a lot. It's bounced quite a lot from the from the lows, like a lot of bombed out small caps have. Um, <clears throat> so I think uh, you know any pullback on this on this on this very very mild profit warning, I think is probably an opportunity to top up a little bit. So it still gets a thumbs up from me. Um, obviously, you know, 2023 might be a tough year, but um, I think prices have built that in to such a large extent already that really for longer term investors, I don't think that's something to be particularly frightened of. Now, another brick manufacturer uh, coincidentally reported, Michaelmersch Bricks. So that follows on from Forterra, F-O-R-T, which I covered on Tuesday. And Michaelmersch Brick, the code is MBH. As I commented, this is becoming a brick themed week. Uh, <clears throat> so a very nice update from Michaelmersch Bricks. Um, there was also an acquisition which looked okay, nothing particularly amazing. Positive trading update, and um, I think it's doing share buybacks. I just spotted a typo in the report. Uh, lovely balance sheet with Michaelmersch Bricks as well. So I think that that gets a thumbs up from me as well. I think both of those are nice um, stocks to consider. McFarlane MACF put out an inline with expectations update, so see Thursday's report for more detail on that. I like it. I think the demanding uh, evaluation is undemanding, so that's uh, well worth a look, I think. Finally, although it's a mid-cap, I reported on Dr. Martens, obviously the famous boot manufacturer, DOCS. DOCS. It put out um, 
uh, profit warning, the shares dropped over 20%. So I thought that was quite surprising. I still don't see value in it. I have to say, I think the shares are still too expensive for Doc Martens, although it does make most of its profit in H2. So you have to bear that in mind when you look at the H1 results. But, you know, consumer-facing stocks, God, they're really struggling still, aren't they? You know, and actually there was something very interesting in the Sunday Times today, several articles on that, saying that they're all overstocked. So they're trying to <clears throat> having to clear excess inventories, lots and lots of retailers. This this is referring to. Um, I think you know that the, the pain and the profit warnings in retail are, are likely likely to continue, aren't they? So although it's my favourite, well, the only sector I'm an expert in, I don't seem to be any good at picking the winners or losers, though. So maybe I'm not. Maybe my uh, maybe my experience on this is out of date now. But anyway, I'm still very wary about the whole sector. Anything consumer-facing at the moment seems to be, you know, really uh, struggling. Now, Graham looked at XPS pensions. I don't know anything about that. Hornby. I don't know why he covered that. But anyway, it seems to like covering that one. HRN. Um, <clears throat> and T. Clark, which I referred to before, Building Services Group. So that was Thursday's report. Another really busy day on Friday. We covered seven companies plus i did a section on delistings i've noticed that we had three companies delisting this week alone which were uh, parsley or saying they're going to delist parsley box source bio and deep matter um so i thought you know we've covered delisting list a lot of times in in the small cap value reports because there are there are i would say quite a, a few hundred companies listed on the uk stock market that are just too small and where it cannot be economic to remain listing um, and I think because now the, the, the it's becoming increasingly clear that the the main the, sorry AIM and the main market are just not the right place for small um, loss making jam tomorrow type companies. And I'm you know I wish brokers wouldn't 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 float companies like that because they're just not suitable for stock market listings. But in the boom years they'll float anything that earns a, a big fee. And I do think all these greedy brokers I'm afraid have killed the golden goose because you know we can now see that most of the stuff that's floated is overpriced and and or absolute junk um or both so that's what and all means really doesn't it so i think you know it's nothing to do with brexit or, or us losing competitive or anything and i think also it's just because they float rubbish and if they floated some more decent companies on the stock market but as one broker said to me if you've got a decent company why on earth would you want to list it on the stock market and have all the hassle and expense of uh of being listed and it's a good point isn't it so i think you have to really look at all ipos and say well why is it being listed um you know obviously the people that know it best are happy to sell shares so i think more and more i'm thinking just bas basically best to ignore pretty much all ipos because you know risk reward is just skewed so much against you there's the odd one that that's really good uh, and of course, a lot of them come down 80, 90 percent from the float price now, at which point they're starting to look more interesting. Some of the 2000 and 2021 floats were were just desperately bad. They were so overpriced and really quite cynically floated, I think, on a on a on a pandemic boom whilst trying to present that that those boom numbers as being structural growth. So, yeah. So anyway, that's so there's, there's a really, I think, really interesting summary of delisting. And I've I, I came up with a list on Friday's report of things to like a checklist for you to look at to assess whether shares you hold are 
uh, uh, are at risk of delisting. And I think it's really important if you're holding really anything below 100 million market cap, you need to look at it and think, you know, is it, does it make sense for this to be listed? If there's no liquidity in the shares, if it needs to raise more money and the public market now, the, as I said before, the, the funding window slams shut really for fundraising more or less. And a lot of companies are saying, actually, we can raise money more easily privately. Um, so delisting is a key theme at the moment to watch out for. Running out of time, so let's speed up. I looked at MotorPoint, M-O-T-R. I previously liked this, but the H1 results, very difficult to value because its its, it's profits have dropped. It's almost only, only a tiny bit above break-even, which does make me query the business model. I think what they're trying to do is they're just going for market share and they're not too bothered about uh, profit for the time being. They're opening new sites. It's it, it's a car supermarket company, MotorPoint. Fundamentally very interesting, but the, the business model is now, and the case for the shares, is that, oh, we're going to kind of turn on the profit engine at a later date. Well... That might have floated people's boats during the tech boom, but I'm not sure it works for me at the moment. So I don't know how to value that one. So I'm on the fence now on Motorpoint. Surface Transforms, SCE, bit uh, more, more jam tomorrow than I normally cover, but I really like the news flow that's coming through from Surface Transforms that makes these high-end ceramic brake discs and does seem to be genuinely a, genuinely a world leader in this. Um, very good contract win was announced this week and the shares rose 10%. Uh, interestingly enough, they said this large order spread over multiple years displaces their main competitor. Now that is really interesting, isn't it? And they say they've now got an order backlog of 290 million. Uh, so very, very interesting surface transforms, I think, if you've not already looked at it. Uh, SCE is the ticket and it's outside of my area of expertise, really, because... It's difficult to value because there's no, there've never been any profits. It's always been loss making, but it does seem to have reached a pretty major commercial inflection point. That's been reflected in a market cap that's gone up a lot, not far off 100 million now. But for those of you who do invest in credible growth companies, I think Surface Transforms is one of the best I've seen. Uh, next, I looked at Vid 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 Videndum. Ticket is VID. This is the new name for Vitech. Uh, shares have held up quite well. I looked at this. It's just an inline update. I don't like the balance sheet, though. They've taken on a lot of debt and they claim to have a robust balance sheet. Often when companies claim that, it means they don't. Otherwise, they wouldn't have mentioned it, would they? So I think they're, they're gearing up and taking on a lot of debt at the wrong stage of the cycle. So I'm not keen on that. But that said, Videndum is a good company, I think, um, and quite interesting. Now, um, Oh, shall I make this one a mystery share? Yes, I'll make this a mystery share. Friday's um, report, the last company I reported on, I'll make a mystery share. Uh, it's got a high stock rent rank, really good dividend yield, and um, a genuinely strong balance sheet. So see Friday's report for that one. Uh, what else? Um, oh, yes, Devro, DVO. Uh, shareholders there, no doubt, putting out the bunting. There's a cash takeover bid, 65% premium. Isn't that brilliant? Brilliant outcome. I've looked back at it because I always, with takeover bids, I like to see, could we have foreseen this? And actually, I don't know why, but Devro is a stock that I hardly ever cover. Um, but Graham did cover it. It's just one of these boring fly-below-the-radar type of stocks that um, makes sausage skins, I think. And anyway, but Graham did look at it back in August. He did a nice review of the interim figures. And when you read that, you can see, gosh, this thing was good value, actually. 
um, good company, decent quality company, um, priced very reasonably. So, uh, yeah, Graham, as I say, well done to Graham. He did flag that one up as a good idea back in August. Um, and really well done to shareholders. I think that's a cracking, it's a real full price the bidders paid. But, uh, you know, it's a European food business that's bid for Devro. Just shows, doesn't it? I mean, a lot of it is luck with takeover bids. You just never know who's going to um, spot a particular company and think it's... Because often they're not value-based bids. You look at a look at taker, a lot of takeover bids, and you think, well, why the hell are they offering that much for it? You know, what what have they seen in it? But it can often be that a, a, a takeover deal might strip out a lot of duplicated costs. You know, they're often... Yeah, cross-selling opportunities, all these are buzzwords, but they do actually, uh, they, they often are behind a lot of takeover bids and you can't necessarily see them from the figures. You know, it's really somebody with in industry expertise might be able to see them. Now, FinCap shares, that's where a possible takeover bid fell through. Pamuel Gordon were in discussions with them for taking it over. I have to say I'm really pleased this deal has fallen through because FinCap are one of our, biggest allies, probably our biggest ally actually for small cap shareholders in that they pump out loads of decent quality research and we can all get it free um, and they, they are broker and nomad for lots and lots of smaller companies. They make access to companies easy. I know that if I contact FinCap they'll be happy to um, arrange a meeting for me to talk to um, CEOs and all the rest of it. Um, so I'm delighted FinCap is staying independent. I looked at the shares as well, totally bombed out. This is the time to be buying bombed out cyclical shares, isn't it? Brokers and fund managers, you know, their earnings are feast or famine. So as Graham pointed out recently, the obvious time to buy them is when you're going through a famine because they've generally got pretty strong balance sheets. Uh, so they'll survive a downturn. Obviously, flexible cost bases, mainly staff who unfortunately do suffer in the downturns, but they know that. They know they're in a feast or famine type of business where they get big bonuses in, and they get paid very, very well in the good years. Uh, you know, most brokers, when you take them down the pub or after a, the second or third pint, will freely admit that they're significantly overpaid compared with other professions. So, you know, uh, but a lot of them are my friends, so I'm not going to slag them off. And they've got, you know, they've got expertise in an area where they can charge outrageous fees. So good luck to them. If they can earn a bob or two, why not? Um, but anyway, I'm delighted FinCap staying independent because they're, 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 they're great friends of ours. Very, very um, decent firm, I think. Finally, I looked at LSL Property Services, um, stating the obvious that the housing market's going through a downturn because of confidence and all the business with uh, uh, mortgage rates and so on. They don't seem that positive about 2023 either. No shit, Sherlock. <laughs> you know, why would anybody be surprised by that? You know, if you watch the news every day, you would think the world was coming to an end. So it really shouldn't be a surprise that estate agents are saying we're going into a tough phase. Um, but LSL, I, the, my main problem with this one is that the... Um, the, the earnings forecasts still look way too high. You know, what I'm looking for at the moment in cyclical companies is where um, earnings forecasts for 2023 have moved from being above 2022 to now being well below 2022. That's what I'm looking for. You want to see those on that graph on Stockopedia. You want to see that 2023 uh, line dropping and cutting through the 2022 line and being well below it. I didn't see that for LSL. So it seems to me the brokers are way behind the curve and need to get those earnings forecasts down. Well, that means there could well be another profit warning. So I'm not going near anything where the broker forecasts are unrealistic. And this feeds through to the... Um, 
to the um, stock screening as well. You need to be careful in a cyclical downturn um, with the results. But something on an incredibly low PE, it might actually just forward PE. It might just be that the brokers haven't brought the, the forecast down enough yet, particularly with small caps, where they often lag behind. Damn, I think we've run out of time for any macro stuff. Hang on. I'm just going to rattle through bullet points here of things that I jotted down during the week. So just press pause if you want to think about anything in more particular. Number one, we've already covered pension scheme buyout at TT Group. Really, really important one. So that needs more thought and analysis from all of us, I think, because you could see pension big pension scheme um, problems actually start to, to disappear at other companies. Um, oh, valuing companies on this year's earnings. I, I've put down, I think that's ridiculous because we're, we're, we're probably going from the top of the cycle to at or near the bottom of the cycle in terms of earnings. So why on earth would you value something of, on a PE of seven times bottom of the cycle earnings? That's crazy. I think you've got to look at the whole cycle and this is where we're going to get our bargains, I think. Companies that can start increasing earnings, although I think we're too, it's too soon to call a bottom in the cycle for sure. Um, Product substitution. This point came up from Acrol. In the narrative there, they said that because they produce uh, a lot of own branded toilet paper for the supermarkets and so on, people are are are, are buying, the, you know, going from the big branded ones that are now too expensive down to the more value uh, orientated products. So I think anything that's producing or selling value products is probably doing better right now than uh, branded products. So that's one of the things I liked about Acrol. And also, once people once people trade down from a, an expensive branded product to a, a cheaper product, they'll realise they're pretty much the same. So that customer could then become quite sticky, I think, for the value product. And there's also a certain inverted snobbery, isn't there? Middle-class people going to Aldi and Lidl and so on. So, uh, yeah, it's all fo a key focus at the moment is on companies selling value products. Now, debt is becoming a lot more expensive. This is my next theme. I noticed timeouts had to do it. I've never understood why that share is valued as it is. It looks an absolute basket case to me. But anyway, um, that's had to just take on a load more expensive debt. And I think companies that... So two key themes at the moment. Will companies be able to refinance their debt at all? And if they do, it's going to be a lot more expensive. So you've got to, you've got to factor that into valuations. Um, in the US, the news flow from there is that they're now expecting slower um, interest rate rises as the risk of a, a recession increases. So um, this is partly, I think, behind the um, rally in the major, in the big indices, because the markets are now saying, OK, interest rates are actually probably not going to be as high as we previously feared, which is obviously good for equities. It's good for, good for all assets, actually. So I think you could have a nice recovery in, in bonds, equities and property, actually, if this recession and interest rates turn out to be not as bad as people feared, which is certainly where... I, I'm currently positioned. I think that's um, I think that's the most likely outcome. Now, shareholder votes. This cropped up. I've noticed that a lot of where they publish the results of the AGM, and a lot of companies now you're seeing significant no votes from institutions, which we never saw in the past. Now, Foxton's was an example of that this week. There were significant votes against resolutions six, eight, and ten on their. Um, AGM, which seemed to have been connected with re-election of non-executive directors. And a couple of them actually resigned after the AGM. So isn't this brilliant? We're starting to see institutional shareholders acting like shareholders and actually applying. And I think this is all a benefit of the current trend towards ESG. Um, so obviously that falls within the G of ESG, governance. 
really, I'm really liking the fact that institutions are now taking AGM votes much more seriously and, and actually voting against stuff that they don't like. Let's hope more of them vote against remuneration reports because there are far too many directors that are absolutely taking the piss with share options and bonuses and, and ridiculous inflated salaries and, you know, giving massive rewards and bonuses to FDs. Why? They're only the bean counter. You know, they don't drive the business, although a good FD will keep control of costs and so on. You know, and uh, Ned's, I think it's all a, a gravy train. You know, they used to be on 10 grand a year a few years ago, Ned's. Now some of them are being paid 30, 40, 50, 60 grand. What for? For turning up once a month for a board meeting? It's crazy. So a lot more needs to be done on, on corporate governance. And bravo to the institutions that are now... Um, you know, properly considering AGM votes. Now, profit warnings, we had quite a few this week. We had Gleason, which was shrugged off, rightly so, for just stating the obvious. Uh, Delarue warned again. I still haven't finished my section on that. Sorry, it's work in progress. Alliance Farmers really collapsed. Um, I remember that was a Mark Slater stock years ago. I don't know if he still likes it or not. Uh, Headland, very mild profit warning we've covered. There was also, I think, a mild profit warning from T. Clark and Dr. Martins, which I've mentioned earlier. So lots of profit warnings still coming through. So that's why I don't necessarily think small caps have bottomed out. Some of them might have done, and the market overall might do, but you're still uh, going to see lots of profit warnings. So that's why I'm not going to get carried away with this current um, this current rally. Still looks to me like a bear market rally. In small caps, I don't know about the wider market. Uh, what have I said about interest rates? Yeah, I don't think we're necessarily in an era of higher interest rates. I think once inflation's come down, I think you might well see interest rates come a long way, maybe not all the way down again. So, as I say, that is very bullish for asset values medium term, and that's what I think the market is anticipating at the moment. Delisting risk we've covered, pension scheme we've covered. Um, oh, something I've started doing a bit more is looking back to the 2008 recession. Uh, companies that are broadly similar now to uh, what they were in 2008 um, it's interesting to look back at the 2008 and 2009 results, see what happened during the recession, um, although that was more with withdrawal of credit as banks shrunk their balance sheets back then. And it's very interesting. A lot of companies actually did OK during that recession, but the P.E. ratios that the shares were, were valued at drastically fell and that created amazing opportunities. There have been quite a lot of shares that five, have since five or ten bagged from, from that recession loan 2008. So it's an interesting comparative to, to look back on. Or for something in a similar sector, have a look back to the results that were put out maybe in the first half of 2009, see how that f sector was affected by the last big recession. Oh, charts. Something else I'm finding, all, all the companies I'm looking at practically, the charts look exactly the same. So for the last year, they've all been declining, you know, steady um, oscillating general trend down for small caps. Then more recently, we've had what I've called an everything rebound, um, <laughs> which obviously hasn't quite applied to everything. Companies that have worn on profit it hasn't. But you, all these all these share prices look the same, don't they? With a significant tick up in the last uh, month or so. Um, and then a lot of them go back down again when they're worn on profits. So when the charts all look like the same like that, we shouldn't be patting ourselves on the back and thinking that our fundamental analysis is good. Basically, you could have picked anything and it, and it would have recovered strongly in the last month. So I think that's worth bearing in mind. Um, oh, on the reader comments, just a polite request here. If people could try and refrain from just announcing their trades 
on Stockopedia. It doesn't add any value. If you just say, oh yes, thanks Paul for your comments on XYZ this morning. Uh, we like it too and we've uh, initiated a position this morning. That doesn't tell me anything. I don't care. It doesn't matter. We've got tens of thousands of subscribers. Nobody cares whether an individual has bought or sold. It doesn't matter. And it just clutters up the comments. So if you could try and refrain from doing that, I would appreciate it. If you add some value, say what you think is good or bad about the share. That's what we're after from the reader's comments. Um, before hitting the send button, do you think to yourself, does this add value to the community? If it doesn't, then 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 press cancel. Okay. Um, Oh, broker forecast. Now, here was something interesting that cropped up. This was um, on Friday's mystery share. The, uh, the, bro the house broker put up a revised note. Profit was the same, but EPS dropped. And I thought, that's odd. And it's because they factored in 25% corporation tax when it was previously 19%, of course. Uh, now, I assumed that would already be in all the broker forecasts, but it seems that it's not. So if you are, not necessarily. So if you're relying on broker forecasts, do double check from the actual note, if you can get hold of it, that the uh, it's correctly accrued the 25% corporation tax going forward, which is a big difference. That's 6% of earnings um, going from 19% to 25% that are uh, being redirected towards uh, HMRC rather than to shareholders. So that is that is a significant factor. Um, generally, I just wanted on a, on a positive note, the community has produced fantastic comments this week. I know it's not all about me. My articles are sort of and Graham's are, are, are sort of initiating a discussion. But I should say we've had uh, we've got a fantastic community and the reader comments have been superb this week on on Stockopedia. So thank you to everyone who contributes. We put you know people who put up their spreadsheets and their own more detailed analysis that we don't have time to do. You know all Graham and I can do is just hurl loads of ideas at you. 25 to 30 every week and then you know we say what we like and what we don't like but then it's really your job to look at those and say do any of these uh, float my boat and I think when you add additional detail in the comments as some of you do of research you've done we absolutely love that um, so more of the same please now just one final point on how difficult on refinancing bank debt which I've covered before much more expensive now much more difficult to get now I've been slightly worried about super dry SDRY because it's cutting it rather fine in terms of refinancing the bank facility. Now, in normal times, I think they'd have no trouble refinancing that facility because Superdry is actually trading OK. Uh, the balance sheet structure overall is OK, and it just needs seasonal funding for its winter, large winter stock intake, which then turns into cash. As I keep saying in the reader comments, building up stocks, build, inventory builds are not cash burn. You know, it's it's taking one asset, cash, and turning it into another asset, inventories, which it then liquidates and turns back into cash. That is not cash burn if a company is building up inventories. I know we, we had a discussion on this, but the people who say building up inventories and cash burn are just wrong. You're factually wrong. I'm sorry. You might want to look at it that way, but you're wrong. So um, the only issue where it would be cash burn is if you're buying inventories that ultimately turn out to be worthless. Then, yes, that's cash burn, but that's pretty rare. But anyway, super dry is cutting it fine, I think. And there's an article that I've got today's Sunday Times here where it says, uh, it, it focuses on several points, actually, that uh, unsold clothes are clogging up M&S's warehouses. Um, and this is a sector-wide problem at the moment for uh, retail. 
non-perishable retail, they've um, they overstocked, they built their inventories because of supply chain problems. Those supply chain problems have now uh, ended largely, and it's now quicker, easier, and much, much cheaper to import from the Far East. Remember, container rates have dropped from $18,000 to $2,000. That's a big tailwind now for fresh stock intake, which is helping the gross margin for these retail and distribution businesses. A very, very nice tailwind, actually, to help them. And, you know, typically there can be between fifty dollars and $100,000 worth of kit in each in each container. So saving $16,000 on the freight, on the shipping cost is a huge number. That's going to really help a lot of a lot of um, firms that need that help. But the problem is they've got too much inventory stuck in warehouses in the UK, and it takes time to liquidate that, which is what the uh, what the um, Sunday Times flags. It also means they've got a lot of capital tied up. I spoke to Seraphine Management. It was an off the record talk, so I can't really <laughs> say anything much about it, but. They said uh, basically the same thing, which they put in the RNS, so we already knew it all, which is they've got much too much um, product and they're just having to gradually wind that down. But the beauty of it is with Seraphine, BUMP is the ticket, it's a big holding of mine, done really, really badly, but I think it's a good, fundamentally a good business. It is risky. There's no no getting away from that. And obviously, people think, is this going to be the next jewels? I don't think it will be. But um, you've got to you've got to entertain that risk. Is there a delisting risk with that one? Yes, I think there is. Definitely, they're spending a lot on maintaining a listing. And you know, if I was in the boardroom, I'd say, well, what are we getting from it? You know, the share price has collapsed by over ninety percent since we floated. But that's ultimately their fault, because they've underperformed. But anyway, they're up against some big. Um, macro factors that are not their fault like the cost of marketing has has, has has ballooned that's the main problem they've got they're also they built up a, a seraphine built up all these inventories as you can see from the last two or three trading updates uh, but the good thing is it's continuity product 70 percent of their product is non-fashion product in other words it's continuity so they don't have to discount it heavily to shift they're just doing things like for example instead of offering 20 percent off for the first order they'll do 30 percent off and things like that but they're very mindful of the fact they don't want to become another jewels where everybody just says oh wait for wait for an email that gives you 50% off everything which is really what killed jewels towards the end um they were desperate to raise cash and they killed their own brand by going into permanent discount well seraphine are very mindful of that and they're not doing it they're just gradually slowly winding down inventories of continuity products so i think it should be okay um, and it's only got three and a half million of net debt, which is not very much at all. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged. I know it's a risky investment, Seraphine, but a five million market cap's a joke. Um, you know, the trouble is it's got one major shareholder with 43%, the Mayfair Private Equity, um, who are said to be very supportive. And it's also then got Christopher Mills of uh, Harvard Capital, who's got 8%, I think. So he hasn't got enough to swing the decision-making, but he does have a nasty habit of delisting companies um, without really paying a proper premium for them. Uh, he's done that most recently this week with SourceBio, although I have to say I'd be happy with the exit price there because I think it's overpriced. But he thinks the private market will value it more highly, so there's no point in a listing, which is fair enough, I guess. But I just hope he doesn't get... Uh, I hope he doesn't manage to do the same at Seraphine. I did quiz management on that, but but obviously they're tight-lipped on anything like that. They can't they can't um, reveal anything that, that might be price sensitive. So I didn't really get anywhere um, digging into that particular point. But anyway, look, what will happen will happen. I think if Seraphine does delist, it probably wouldn't 
dropped that much in price because it's so ludicrously cheap already. Um, why would anybody sell? It's the trouble, and, and it's only 15% free float. The rest is all held by institutions anyway, uh, and which is only three quarters of a million quid of stock in total. As I said to management, plenty of my friends could just press a button and buy the whole damn lot. Uh, you know, so it's such small amounts with Seraphine that I'm prepared to take a risk on it anyway. And if it goes if it goes wrong, you know, I know I know what risk reward is like. If it works, it's a five or six bagger. Uh, if it goes wrong, potentially, worst case scenario, it could be a zero. So I think as long as you know what risk reward is, then you can make a value judgment. Oh, God, this is too long. I'm going to have to stop, but I won't upload. Bye.